Sam, welcome to the show, man. Happy to have you here. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate it. So I've followed you for a long time. I'm sure people have, we are a lot of people in our circles cross paths and, and we have a lot of overlapping followers, but for people that don't know who you are and what you're about, honestly, I, I, I've followed you for a long time, but I don't know a lot about your background. So let's do a little bit of like, who is Sam Miller? And you know, we had discussed off, off air that you're writing a book or I, I don't know where you are in the production process of that book, but tell us a little bit about it. And we're definitely going to dive into some of those topics today. For sure. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to share Jordan. So uh, my background, I've been in the health and fitness industry for a little over 15 years. I first got involved due to my own interest in health and fitness, um, was certainly interested in, you know, being active in athletics growing up, but wasn't necessarily someone that just naturally had like the best body composition possible. Um, in my teens, I sort of faced certain setbacks and obstacles that impacted my ability to, you know, the basics of getting stronger, looking better. Um, I, I, later was kind of interested in pursuing some natural bodybuilding sort of goals and objectives. And I kind of became infatuated with the idea of both nutrition, personal training, health and fitness, and really um, anything I could get my hands on. Unfortunately, was even able to start doing some schooling for that as early as as high school. So, you know, got my first sort of personal training certification. That was always my side hustle throughout my university experience. So, you know, while getting my bachelor's pretty much was always coaching in some form or fashion. I was a student coordinator uh, at Elon University where I went to undergrad and pretty much just like fell in love with it at the time, but also had a lot going on in my own sort of health and fitness journey. I had had a pretty significant concussion early on um, in my life, snowboarding that basically combined with a little bit of dietary misinformation, not the best nutritional practices for TBI, sort of set me down this road of really going down both kind of a nutritional rabbit hole, but also endocrinology rabbit hole, and also getting into things like gut health and other aspects of human metabolism. So basically that's sort of my you know own obstacle sparked an interest and realized, hey, a lot of other clients maybe have some, some of these sort of unconventional cases and sometimes there's a little bit more to the story than just like the sets and reps that we're doing in the gym. So even though I started a little bit more on the training side, that really lit a spark for me to get more education related to nutrition, physiology, endocrinology, and really look at the intersection of these topics and how the body is like especially perceptive to both, you know, um, the energy components that, you know, we often talk about in terms of calories and macronutrition, but also things like stress and how you know, other uh, elements of things like whether it's inflammation, um, you know, just elevated body burden in general can impact client transformation and their progress towards their goals, but also just how they feel, right? So their biofeedback, overall symptoms, energy levels, fatigue, and things of that nature. So pretty much have always been involved from health and fitness ever since high school. Um, and even through, you know, grad school was doing kind of online coaching in its infancy. And to this day, I now primarily focus on providing continuing education for other health and fitness professionals. Um, though my book, Metabolism Made Simple, which is Making Sense of Nutrition to Transform Metabolic Health, is designed for anyone who's either a health enthusiast or a coach interested in learning a bit more about metabolism, nutrition, and as the subtitle says, kind of making sense of nutrition so that you can apply it in your own transformation, whether you have you know, aesthetic goals, performance goals, or you're just trying to be a bit healthier and live longer. And so that book will drop on November 1st, 2022. Yeah, that's awesome. Very excited. And you had mentioned that you were going to do a promotion early on. And if there's any way that I can help put a link in the bio or a link in the description or anything like that, I'm happy to do so. I saw the table of contents. We talked about it a little bit. A uh, lot of good topics. We're going to pick, uh, I think, a very broad 
topic called stress and having a better understanding of it for today. But there was a lot of things that I think would be useful for, like you said, both coaches, but also just health enthusiasts in general. And so let's dive a little bit into just this main topic of stress, which obviously is a super broad topic. Um, and I, we have some notes in front of us, but I know there's going to be some tangents. And so I'm totally fine asking a question that I know has a very broad answer and see where we decide to go with it. But um, the, the some of the things that initially come to mind to me when I'm thinking of wanting either my clients or myself to have a better understanding of stress is this discussion of like the different kinds of stress that we experience, whether that's stress from training, perceived stress from life and just like stressful experiences, you know, um, and what the interplay between them is. And in some regard or not, do they all somewhat go in the same bucket? Are they having like from a physiological perspective, from like an under the hood perspective, are they having a ton of overlap? Are they not having a lot of overlap? Um, and, and and is that something that, uh, how would we go about addressing that? We could talk about the how afterwards, but is that something like when we talk about the differences between those things, what are the differences and do to some degree, do they all go in the same bucket? For sure. So I think to start off, the first thing we can do is kind of unpack this definition or label of stress and how people view it in the health and fitness industry. So largely I think clients either have sort of one or two sort of connotations when they think of the word stress. One is um, you know, I'm stressed, the perceived lifestyle stress of rush hour traffic or getting the kids to soccer practice, or uh, my boss sent me a stressful email, that version of quote unquote stress. And then other folks based on whether they've seen an infomercial about cortisol, or they see an influencer talking about, you know, something related to stress and cortisol, they may have an association of, oh, stress is bad or stress equals cortisol. And they have a sort of association as it pertains to our hormones and HPA axis function. In reality, stress is really kind of this broad catch-all term. And in the transformation process, we could kind of think of it in a few different scenarios. Acute stress, which would just be like a reaction to, hey, I got this stressful message or maybe had an uncomfortable interaction or uh, this sucks, like I'm stuck in traffic. That's not fun for everybody. That's kind of the acute stress. Chronic stress would be something that's persistent over time and is not resolved. Um, and then there's various components that can make something more or less stressful. Things like the novelty of it, how unpredictable it is, um, if it's a continued threat, and also like our sort of skill set or perceived ability to manage the stressor. So if we somehow have control over it or we're able to brace for it, it can make that event a little bit less stressful. Now in client transformation, one thing that I tend to see is there's kind of these different buckets as it pertains to stress, um, though they're all integrated very closely intertwined and they're all going to impact your health and fitness journey. And in most cases, it is sort of having an interplay with the hormone cortisol, which is necessary in you know the appropriate Goldilocks amounts during certain parts of the day as part of your circadian rhythm. But really, when we think about stress, we kind of have like circadian stress, which is someone who maybe has jet lag or they're staying up late or they don't have consistent sleep and wake times. Uh, inflammatory stress, which could be uh, something from an injury or infection or sort of GI condition of some kind. Glycemic stress, which could simply be hey, I'm pre-diabetic, I'm headed towards metabolic syndrome, I'm insulin resistant, I have a hard time regulating my blood sugar. That would be sort of a glycemic stressor. Um, and then we have perceived stress, which is really just, as I mentioned, could be you know uh, your day-to-day -day life, your interactions at work, something related to you know that traffic scenario that I described. And so all of these are going to impact the human body to some degree, um, and they are integrated. There's definitely some interplay there. However, how we might manage them may uh, tie back to different health behaviors in terms of actually getting that stressor to resolve. 
Let's talk a little bit, just really just give the listener a brief description of cortisol and what is it and how might it have gotten a bad rap and how is it maybe just not fully understood? For sure. So cortisol is essentially released when, um, so the adrenal glands are going to produce cortisol. It's a corticosteroid. Basically this hormone plays a role in your circadian rhythm or biological clock per se. So when we wake up in the morning, we should have what's called a cortisol awakening response. So this hormone is necessary in pulses to basically, you know, have energy. Uh, even if you were to go to the gym and you're in a little bit more of that kind of activated, you know, sympathetic drive or like fight or flight type state, that is okay to some degree uh, because it, it basically helps with alertness. It's an alertness response, which is a good thing. You wouldn't want to be flatlined and then try to you know go set some PRs. So cortisol definitely is necessary in some amounts. I think where people have the negative connotation is they see an infomercial about cortisol and belly fat or something pertaining to cortisol being you know bad for you. And certainly if it's mis if if it's sort of mistimed and maybe we're wired and tired in the evening or uh, we have inappropriate amounts or we're under chronic stress for far too long, that's certainly not going to be the best for our muscle building goals because cortisol is sort of this catabolic uh, hormone from a physiological perspective, also plays an important role in fasted state physiology for managing blood sugar. So cortisol is absolutely necessary. We do need it. If you didn't have it, you'd essentially be labeled with having a particular endocrine disease. So we certainly don't want a situation of no cortisol, but um, I do think a lot of times people sort of place a label on it as like, that's the bad hormone. And then, you know, whether it's reproductive hormones or thyroid hormones, those are the good hormones. When in reality, it's all kind of functioning as a symphony and they have to work together hand in hand for normal metabolic function. So let's talk, we've mentioned chronic stress a couple of times. And I think that there's, this goes for, you could almost make another like, like parallel for the word inflammation here. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of misconception of that. The fact that like people think that it, that chronic stress is really just the aggregate of a lot of acute stress. Uh, it's like, oh, I have, I do, you know, I do stressful things and it's the, all these little things that's causing me to be in a state of chronic stress, or we can even branch out into a state of chronic inflammation. Is that actually what chronic stress is? Is chronic stress is, Hey, I have a lot of acute stressors in my life or is chronic stress something else that's going on behind the scenes that has way more interplay? Like how would you we go about defining what chronic stress even is? So I would think of acute versus chronic in terms of the length of time that we're experiencing the stressor. And I certainly think we need to look at the aggregate of overall stressors in your life. So if you have a lot of acute stress from a lot of different areas, that probably speaks to something in terms of either time management, you know, our overall resiliency or like emotional uh, regulation. So I think there's two or three things we could look at if someone's really experiencing a lot of acute stressors, like what is our personal responsibility in this per in this particular situation? Like, is everything really outside of our control? Is there Are there actually some things we could do um, to help manage life a little bit better? And chronic stress, I would say that's you know ongoing. It's something that's repeated and it can vary, right? Whether that's uh, maybe you have a loved one who's sick and you're you're in a primary care provider role. Um, maybe it's something that uh, you're dealing with particular you know burden related to your job that's ongoing for a period of time. I really think uh, of family situations, uh, maybe certain sort of personal, whether it's financial stress, moving. There's actually a. Uh, a specific questionnaire from, I believe it started with psychology journals that would use like a perceived stress questionnaire and they have this scorecard and they'll essentially rate different things. So, you know, going through a divorce, for example, very, very, very stressful, um, certainly wouldn't 
wish that on anyone. Uh, death of you know a loved one. Maybe you had a grandparent that you're super close to, and you're now an adult, and you're very closely involved in their sort of final years or months of life. That can be incredibly stressful and also very emotional, and it's natural for humans to go through that grieving process. So we can look at the difference. While it is seem you know it does seem incredibly severe, obviously a bit of a stressful email from your boss versus maybe you were very close with a grandparent and they're you know in the latter portion of their lifespan very very different types of stress and sort of emotional burden that we'd be going through and the way that we might resolve that is very very different one is is more of um potentially like we need to change our behavior versus something that maybe doesn't have anything to do with our behavior at all and therefore can be a bit more challenging to sort of reconcile So when I think of stressors and what clients deal with, there are going to be scenarios in life that are ongoing, they're somewhat lengthy and a bit beyond our control in terms of our personal circumstances. And then there's going to be acute stressors, which we could manage perhaps through health behaviors, stress management interventions, whether it's a walk in nature or you know pets Jordan and I were talking about dogs before the podcast that's you know certainly a great way to actually help your stress response or maybe our acute stressor we just need to develop a bit more resiliency which you know we even have um you know research to support things like overall exercise can actually help with that in terms of hp axis function so i do look at them very differently and i think when it comes to the client experience different people are going to be stressed by different things but we really need to look at overall like what is the overall time horizon of that stressor and then kind of the intensity of it looking at uh, the degree to which we can maybe influence uh, both the situation itself and our emotions throughout the experience. When I think of stress, I get an even making some notes of the podcast, I get an overwhelming feeling of like when I read back some of the shit that I wrote, I'm like, no fucking shit, dude, being, being stressed out. And these, a lot of these things that you just mentioned, like it's not, it's forgetting even physiologically what's going on under the hood. It is not an enjoy. None of what you said is like a objectively an enjoyable experience. Like being stuck right. in traffic, having a loved one pass away. Like like a lot of the you know, stressful with your boss. You're getting divorced. Like we're forgetting like what's going on under the hood. We all know these are just like not enjoyable experiences. And if our goal generally is to improve and have the best quality of life over our lifespan, my my, my thought here is kind of like learning about stress is one thing. But what do I do now with this information of like, I know that those experiences are stressful. I know that those experiences, forgetting even physiologically what's happening, they're not, you know, having that be my chronic state of feeling stressed out is not the way I want to live my life. Now, what do I now do with that information? What are some of the things that you're, you know, identifying, you have a client in front of you, you're kind of looking at this whole aggregate of acute and chronic stressors of lifestyle factors of what's going on in their life, plus other uh, more physiological things, maybe from a nutrition and training standpoint, sleep standpoint. So I have these like external things that are going on with my job and my spouse and my kids. But then I have these internal things that are going on with like how I'm fueling my body and how I'm, you know, acutely stressing it from training and how I'm treating it from a sleep perspective. Like what what do we do now? Okay, I, I don't wanna throw too much at you, but how are we identifying a state that needs addressing and what are we doing about it? So I think we could look at this a couple of different ways, depending on the person's goals. Uh, so whether you have a body composition or performance goal, maybe we're looking at something as simple as progressive overload in the gym, a training log, or perceived you know recovery. Those could all be potential indicators in terms of uh, our ability to continue to make progress. Uh, you know, looking at biofeedback, maybe we're asking some things subjectively and marking that down on a rating scale, but also allowing for some, you know, elaboration on open-ended questions. So, when a client's experiencing a stressor, um, 
really what we might do is consider how might we periodize for this stressor or basically just a fancy word for planning? What sort of strategy can we de deploy? Is that a deload? Is this going to be going on for a period of time? For example, I've worked with clients where it's like, okay, we have a newborn at home. Probably going to make sense to just like reduce the training days over the course of the week rather than like planning for the best case scenario, knowing that we're in a bit of a less predictable season of life. So maybe we take, you were doing five training days, we're going to back it down to three, or maybe you were doing four or five longer training days. We just reduce, you know, total volume to some extent to make those training sessions shorter. So there's a lot of different ways we can sort of approach, depending on what the stressor is, we might start with, Hey, if the stressor is related to your time and you have something like a newborn that you're dealing with, maybe we're looking at your training versus if it's nutrition and there's a stressor, knowing that a calorie deficit in itself is sort of taking away from your overall recovery bandwidth, potentially what we're going to do is just give you a little bit more of nutritional support, which maybe might mean bringing you to maintenance calories. So as coaches, we have different tools in our toolbox and which one we deploy is largely going to depend on be dependent on what stressor you're experiencing and you know the length of time that you're under stress. Now, having a new child, probably your sleep's going to be compromised for a couple months. So maybe it's not the best time to be pushing, you know, like maximal PRs. Um, you know, maybe we're intentionally in more of a maintenance phase. We focus on some accessory work, injury prevention, things like that, all a part of sort of this seasonal strategy to keep us moving towards our goals and not going backwards, but we can certainly reduce volume and still, you know, maintain our muscle. Um, we don't need to be in a massive deficit, especially if we're not sleeping. That's you know, probably not the best idea. So we can do certain things around the edges to keep things, you know, stable um, and not come completely crashing down. I think it's, I just find that maybe just from what I do, I think that there's, um, I'm in somewhat in control of two main variables, your training stress and the potential stress from your nutrition side of things. I also think that as coaches, there's going to be some bleeding over into the psychology aspect. Yes, we're not therapists, absolutely not replacing therapy whatsoever, but there's, there should be some depth to the discussion. And there's obviously a line in the sand where people should go and get help elsewhere. But I do think as a coach, maybe as a client listening to this, it's not that all of these stressors are exactly the same and they all just are numbers that go into a bucket and you can only handle so much stress, but there is an interplay. It is a tug of war. It is a finite you know, cup of water that can only have so much stress poured into it. And if you're starting off or you're going through a period of life where that, that cup is half full already and now we have to fit in diet and nutrition or diet and training, that that's gonna look different. And there is a finite amount of stress that is, in my opinion, you could totally jump in, but that is at least a helpful way to think about it where like, like you said, I'm having a period of time where I'm going through more stress. Maybe this isn't the time for me pushing uh, as much or, Let's be just more direct. I probably can't do as much from a training perspective. I probably can't incur as much stress from training as I would have normally and still feel really good because I'm not having those, you know, good sleep recovery uh, benefits from that. Or I can't potentially deal with as much of a deficit or any deficit at all during this period because sleep's not great or I'm going through other stressors because my stress glass for lack of a more, you know, uh, descriptive uh, artistic way of describing it is already half full here. And so we can't just shove a bunch more either training stress or stress from a, a deficit perspective, or even you could even talk about stress from like a lower, a very low carbohydrate perspective, which we could talk about. Um, and so as a client, I find that one of the best things to think about is like, hey, like, 
is this the best time for me to be doing X? How, how you know, when I'm going through a state of life where I'm, I don't have, you know, maybe you're in residency or you're going, you have like finals, right? It's like finals, the best time for you to be in a deficit, maybe low carb and training to, you know, your peak capacity, probably not. Um, would you say that just like very simply for a client to take home would be like, hey, acknowledge that there's a finite amount of stress that you could be under at any given time or or at least maybe to think of these as um, tugging at a similar string here. And if I'm turning one knob all the way up that other knobs maybe should at least be considered. Yeah, so I look at it a couple of different ways beyond the tugging at the string and really also reflecting on a bit of um, engaging a conversation with the client to create self-awareness. But if this was me, in my own transformation, uh, I've had seasons of life where, you know, I've done like a contest prep and actually, you know, was going through things like finals actually worked out for me because I would just like bring some index cards to do cardio and made the most of potentially what was a stressful situation. However, there are individuals who if training is new for them and they're still sort of developing that habit or like it's not their favorite thing or most enjoyable thing and they're doing it and kind of just initially kind of that I'm going through the motions to get the momentum going, I think that can be very different, right? So first we have to have self-awareness of what realistically um, is sort of our work capacity, both from the actual physical aspect of doing the training. But I do think even in terms of the amount that's on your calendar, the amount of work that you typically get done in a day, these are sort of things that we can build over time. And so if, if you're in a place where you haven't necessarily built that resiliency or work capacity. Um, you know, I don't know that there's essentially this threat. There is a threshold for every single person where we all probably feel like we're getting close to a proverbial breaking point, and that's going to vary. So, I think to really distill a few concepts out of this conversation, something that I would agree on and and kind of reflect on on Jordan's sentiments would really be uh, number one: we have to have a level of self awareness around our past experiences and things that we can learn from in terms of dealing with a current stressor. Uh, and you know, if I'm the type of person who's been training four or five days a week for a very long period of time, well, maybe, um, you know, I have a greater work capacity ability to handle more volume and just, you know, higher level of weights and stuff in the gym overall than maybe someone who's only in like their fourth month of training ever in the entirety of their transformation, right? That's a pretty clear example or difference. Then there's going to be things like, Certainly, there have been seasons of my life where I did not do as much work. I didn't have as much on my calendar, and it felt like a lot. But then after having seasons with a bit more to handle and a bit more to manage, I sort of trained this skill of both managing the time and how to regulate sort of my emotional state during those stressors. So I do think some of these things can be learned, and it is a bit malleable and, and sort of adaptive in a way, but uh, it does take practice, and you do have to have sort of the right behaviors in place to be able to deal with that. And if you don't, yes, 100%, we need to either dial back so we're not pulling, um, I, I guess a good way to think of it is like burning the candle at both ends, right? Eventually, we're going to reach a point where you know we've essentially burnt through all of the candle, candle wax that we have, and that's going to be a problem. Can't necessarily really go backwards from there. So we need to identify it ahead of time. But you know, for some people, that rate of burn is just going to be a little bit different than others. Yeah, I think that I think that that's fair. I think that there's no like no hard and fast rules. You know, I, I, I truthfully have had people with newborns who have had totally successful periods of 
of calorie deficit, let's say. Um, but I right. do think it's the awareness and the, and the consideration and the acknowledgement that this might cause this. And we should pay attention to biofeedback maybe a little closer. And some of those things are just being aware that like to some degree, these two things are related and, and we should take into account that this is happening to you. Um, I totally agree with that. Let's let's pivot to just the con- the conversation that everybody is here for is how is stress affecting or not affecting my ability to lose fat or well, let's talk, let's talk about it from a, a fat loss gain perspective and from a performance in the gym perspective. Sure. So I think there are a couple of different avenues where stress plays an important role in transformation. The first would be related just to our overall sleep schedule and the fact that sleep plays an important role both in recovery and fat loss and you know performing our best in the gym. So if stress is impacting your sleep or you're having constant rumination or anxious. How is that happening by the way, not to cut you off, but how might me being in a state of being stressed out for a lack of a more physiological description, how might that affect my sleep quality? Sure. So cortisol is sort of inverse to melatonin. And if it's high in the evening, this can be problematic because it leads to that wired and tired feeling. Um, Your sleep is a bit less restorative and we don't have the right signaling going on at the right time. So cortisol is really meant to be kind of out and about and doing its thing in the morning as part of that awakening response. And it should slope downward um, as the day goes on. So it sort of spikes a bit more after waking. And then what happens is if it is elevated in the evening, that's going to be a problem in terms of the other hormones that are part of sort of your daily, you know, diurnal rhythm. So that is one of the direct effects. Um, and cortisol in itself, in addition to sort of messing with your sleep, if it is high, it is catabolic as opposed to being anabolic in nature, meaning cortisol does a great do- job of breaking things down. Um, it can make et- energy readily available to, you know, it can regulate glucose helps with an alertness response, but it's not something that if it's super prevalent all the time, that's not going to be best for someone who wants to be in a more anabolic state, which is one of building things up. So if you're trying to build muscle tissue, if you're trying to accomplish hypertrophy, we need to make sure that we're sort of achieving this balance between anabolism and catabolism. And cortisol certainly plays a role more on the catabolic side, which is just part of its nature. Um, We don't really want to demonize it for being that way. And part of it is our responsibility to engage in more parasympathetic activities to kind of bring that down and also pay attention to things like caffeine cutoffs and, you know, basic practices that we can deploy in our daily lives just to keep things, you know, a bit more on track. The interplay between stress and sleep is just such a feedback loop, obviously. And so, you know, having being stressed out and then getting poor sleep and poor sleep in and of itself, be getting more stress and and worse recovery. And what, what, speaking of like a cortisol, like dysregulation, like cortisol would not being high at times you would want it to be and uh, being higher at times you wouldn't want to be or lower when you wouldn't want it to be just not working on a normal schedule the schedule that you would want it to work on what might that look like practically for an individual you know if they're trying to identify maybe that this is something you know people aren't getting like 24-hour saliva cortisol tests and stuff and so you might I might share an experience that like when when we're looking at like overtraining which I say with that sort of voice just because most people um yeah, let's not even bridge that gap for me. Like the difference I'm, between like overtraining, functional overreaching. There's a lot of semantics in the research yeah, around yeah. what actually defines that term. But, you know, your biofeedback's pretty poor. You're likely not progressing. Um, maybe it was a planned state of kind of overreaching, but there's also a chance that um, if you're just doing junk volume, we have to question on the appropriate sets. Are you actually training with requisite intensity if you're actually able to do that much junk volume? Because if you were actually training with intensity and did that much volume, you'd feel like you got hit by a train. So definitely agree with Jordan on 
those sentiments, I'd say from a practical scenario perspective, how do we know this is a little messed up? Quality of life, biofeedback, um, performance decreases, but also just think of a few few you know daily life scenarios. If you're a night shift worker, if you're rotating you know shift work as a police officer, nurse, firefighter, SWAT, military, a lot of uh, job responsibilities can influence that. I've even seen anesthesiologists who have to go into the hospital and work at various times and work on different schedules. Schedules and shift work plays a massive role. Uh, as far as other professions and general population, it could be, hey, you like to go out to the bar on the weekends. And so you have what's called social jet lag. You essentially go to a, go to sleep at a different time on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, than you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's not necessarily the best thing for our circadian rhythm. Another aspect would just be light exposure. Um, caffeine can be a big one. You know, those things are going to play into that, having that healthy circadian rhythm. But when we're constantly shifting back and forth, that's a problem. You travel for work and you're maybe more of a, you know an executive role and you have to go like across the country or you're in diff- different time zones. That's going to kind of play with cortisol and circadian rhythm. And then obviously there's the stress component that we talked about a little bit earlier. But when I've seen this sort of rear its ugly head with clients, there's usually a you know sort of work-related component. It could be related to scheduling, like some of the different jobs that I outlined. There's usually kind of a caffeine or maybe substance related components. And uh, you know, then there's just kind of the, are you going to sleep at the same time, basically every day, waking up, getting some light exposure, doing what you need to do and cutting off caffeine by the early afternoon. Because if you're having, um, you know, kind of massive caffeine consumption, or you're trying to hit like a super late night workout, those are the types of things that could be impacting your sleep. And then um, before we segue topics, short, I do think we should also reference like stress and the interplay with potential um, insulin resistance, especially as a result of that lost sleep, which then has compounding effects in terms of someone's overall body composition and just health in general. Um, so a lot of what you'll notice is some of those roles that I mentioned have kind of this pattern of not only are they going to lead to some of those uh, changes in cortisol, kind of adrenal dysregulation, but uh, they do have some metabolic consequences as well. Yeah. And and a very specific question that someone will ask is, well, is any of that affecting my ability to change my body composition? Am I, am I, is this whole fucking cortisol thing that you guys have been talking about? Is this stopping me from losing fat? Is this the reason that I can't lose fat? Or you mentioned cortisol belly. I mean, where, I I think we can all agree that having good sleep hygiene as as a proxy for a big thing that is relevant in terms of stress management recovery. Um, is, is any of this stopping somebody from losing fat in a direct physiological sense? Are there practical implications? Are there, how, how does somebody go about reconciling those two? Yeah. So I don't love looking at it as like black or white or like a light switch on or off. I like to think of it as a gradient scale or like a dimmer dimmer dial or like your radio in, in the car that you can like turn up incrementally. So the, the degree to which you are experiencing those things, whether those, you know, that be um, high stress, potential sleep changes, which is going to impact your circadian rhythm, HPA, access regulation and function, things like that. It is gradually going to make it progressively more challenging and likely impact your performance relative to if you were optimally recovered, achieving amazing sleep, staying on the same schedule, implementing a caffeine cutoff, right? We're we're talking about some things that might be a few percentage points here and there, or a few, you know, a few inches if we're talking like kind of using 
football analogy of like a game of inches and trying to get a first down, it's going to compound in a way that can build over time. Does it make it impossible to achieve your goals? No. Does it make it harder? Yes. And it's likely showing up in terms of your performance as well as your quality of life. And one thing I notice, especially with individuals when we're missing on sleep or we're seeing this circadian dysregulation, um, it can skew your appetite patterns, preferences, management of hunger and cravings, which can make it a bit harder to adhere to a calorie deficit or potentially uh, even impacting you know, your ability to build muscle as well if you're not making the necessary nutritional choices to move towards your body composition goals. So is it an on-off switch of I'm never going to hit my goals if I'm in this situation? No, that's not the case. I don't really like having a fixed mindset around those sort of things. Just want to think of we want to stack these things in our favor because they compound over time in a way that can, if done correctly, can make it easier to achieve our goals. So it's like the difference of I can hop in the stream. It's easier to swim downstream like with the current than it is to swim upstream against the current. And sticking with that analogy, though, if you like is like we will say, even if you swam upstream and your goal was to go 100 meters, you could go there. It, theoretically, it's possible. Nothing, nothing is technically stopping you. It's just much harder. And so if you're looking right. at how stress is affecting your ability to lose fat to be very specific about it. it it's it's not in a physiological sense but it's make it stack in the deck against you in terms of your actual ability to do something that's already hard even with all yeah. your ducks in a row uh it's going to make like you said it's going to change how your 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 hunger is regulated or you see likely specifically with sleep disruption or worse sleep that ghrelin goes up um you know it's going to make you less you'll be more tired you're less likely to move throughout the day your performance will go down in the gym and and all of these things are stacking the decks against your ability to adhere, not necessarily like physiologically, hey, Jordan, I'm hitting all my calories, I'm hitting all my steps, I'm, you know, I'm getting my workouts in, but I'm, you know, I have too much cortisol and this is stopping me from, that, that's not what's happening. Um, but you, but with that example, that person may need to either adjust their caloric intake because their NEAT is lower because they're tired or fatigued fatigued, excuse me, their exercise activity thermogenesis may be skewed because they're not achieving optimal performance. And to just play devil's advocate on the stress side, as much as it still is that gradient scale, you know, with, um, you know, high levels of cortisol, we also do, do see some pre uh, preferential visceral fat deposition and things like that. So internally from like your overall health perspective, that's not really great in terms of overall cardiometabolic health and longevity either. So if you care about your health and reaching your goals, we do need to manage some of these things. It's like you could probably get away with it for a little while, but it's certainly not optimal or ideal. And, you know, I know you talk about kind of like optical, optimal meeting practical, right? If it's not sustainable for you and it's making everything harder every single day through every season of your transformation, you're going to get really annoyed and frustrated by that. So at some point, it's like we have to change some of these things, even if it's just two or three to kind of stack the deck in our favor or get the momentum going the right direction because otherwise it's just making it so much harder and everything's compounding in the wrong direction, both from an exercise performance, non-exercise activity, recovery. You're going to feel like you're dragging ass too. And you know, ultimately, a lot of us want to feel good. Yeah, we want to look good, but we also want to feel good, have improved quality of life and uh, you know, not just have to you know adhere to yet you know, a lower def deficit or kind of macro subtraction, eventually that reaches a point of diminishing returns where uh, simply just makes it very, very hard, even if you are in a situation where you theoretically could do it in air quotes. Uh, it's certainly maybe not the best way uh, or most optimal way to do things.
Oh yeah. My acknowledgement that it is not stopping you was not a pump up speech for you to, for, yeah, for those yeah, listening yeah. to, I hope, to I hope you guys burst t- through yeah, it. Definitely not. Home. Yeah. I hope, I hope you realize like we're, we're in agreement that like, it's certainly not, uh, certainly not doing you any favors, but it is possible. So please don't have like a sort of fixed perspective around the fact that like, Oh my God, I can't reach my goals because of hormones. I think hormones are far too often the scapegoat in transformations. And it also diminishes someone's experience who is actually dealing with something fairly significant when if you're just kind of in your transformation, you're not actually managing things within your control and improving your health behaviors. And then you're just like, oh, it's it's my hormones. It's not really that as someone who's like had a pretty significant physical injury that actually impacted my endocrine system. It's like for the people who actually are experiencing that, it is a little bit of like using that as a scapegoat is a bit of like a slap in the face in a way too. So we do want to, this is where the self-awareness comes in, right? It's like for some people, yes, there's a physiological component that is certainly impacting whether they are pursuing their goals in optimal fashion. And then for other folks, it's like they need to focus on the big rocks and that's going to move them in the right direction. Like we've mentioned sleep 17 different times in this podcast, because that's something that's just generally going to make it a bit easier for you to make better nutritional decisions, you know, have a better, you know, better time in the gym. And you're probably going to be more likely to feel like going for that walk instead of sitting on the couch if you got like eight hours of sleep instead of like four hours of sleep. So some of this is just general, I think, in the fitness industry, becoming more like common sense and mainstream advice. And then some of it is also um, understanding the nuance or like context of someone's individual situation. Let's let's stay with sleep for a second because I think we're beating stress to a to fucking to a dead horse here. And so let's stay with sleep for a second. Let's talk a little bit about basic sleep hygiene habits. And, you know, if there were we can end with some key takeaways here. But I think that is it's not the most important factor because I think to even try and build a hierarchy is irrelevant. I think a lot of these things are important. You're training, modulating training stress to be an inadequate amount and making sure that we're acknowledging nutrition's interplay here is is relevant and your perceived stress with work and life and relationships is relevant. But man, sleep has got to be up there. It's like one of the bottlenecks for most people. It makes just fucking everything across the board harder. And I probably haven't had somebody, you know, come on here and, and us do like a more of a deep dive. we got 15 minutes left here and we could spend it on like, hey, how can I improve my sleep? Because I know that that's going to have a knock on effect to basically everything else I do. I think that's fair. So from a sleep perspective, you want just like practical uh, takeaways for clients would be looking at, I think it's a combination, right? We talked about basics like caffeine, but we can also look at body temperature, light exposure, and even potentially our meal timing. People do respond differently to when they're consuming meals. Now, I'm I'm not necessarily saying that because I want you to focus on minutia of like chrononutrition or freaking out about carbs or freaking out about having your dinner at a certain time. It's just sort of being mindful that if you feel particularly well rested and maybe, you know, you did have your dinner or a post dinner meal kind of snack a little bit earlier in the evening and you got great sleep, it might just be worth considering because for you, maybe from a blood sugar perspective, that works out. Um, In the cases of women who are maybe going through perimenopause, things like contrast hydrotherapy and focusing on that body temperature regulation can be super important. But overall, for most individuals, keeping a dark, cool room, avoiding things that are incredibly stimulating like technology before bed or you know, engaging in like internet arguments, probably not the best thing for overall winding down things like reading a book or you know, let's say you have pets or something, great time to just kind of hang out, hang out at home. Um, and if you have 
uh, you know, friends or roommates or family or a partner, like great time to just focus more on kind of your interpersonal connections. Um, and, you know, it could also mean like going outside for another walk, you know, so for me, I have dogs at home. So it's usually I have that morning walk and then usually I'll kind of wind down after work and, you know, eat a meal and then maybe go for another walk and then do some reading and stuff and, and go to bed. So as far as basic things, three to five things in our control would easily be, you know, kind of having that cool, dark room, keeping our, our body temperature regulated, which could involve, you know, maybe you're even using something like hydrotherapy to do so. Um, we could also focus on meals, which I mentioned, caffeine cutoff, super important. If you're having a hard time falling asleep, I would also recommend looking at when your training session is in the evening. Uh, if you're potentially moving it to lunchtime or morning or midday, if you can, but if you're someone who gets off of work and then you're doing your training and you notice you have a very hard time falling asleep, or you're using pre-workout before you go to knock out that training session, first, I would look at switching to a less stimulating pre-workout option. Then I would potentially look at moving the training time, or maybe you can train, maybe you're on a four-day split, maybe on Saturday and Sunday, you don't have the same work constraints. So you can move that training up during the day. And maybe on Tuesday and Thursday, we could do kind of a modified training session uh, and maybe look at the timing of that training session. So those are three to five really practical ways to address that. Um, and then people always ask like, well, caffeine cut off, what, what should that be? And different people do metabolize caffeine at a slightly different rate, but just to be safe, I always recommend early afternoon for your time zone. So like for me on Eastern time, I'm going to cut it off early afternoon because I know if, based on the half-life of caffeine, if I want that out of my system, I can't be having, you know, a cup of coffee or an energy drink or something at five or 6 PM. That's not going to be great for my sleep overall. Um, and then in terms of light exposure, I mentioned obviously having the dark room, but in the morning, do try to get out and get light exposure via sunlight, whether that's going for a walk or maybe you sit outside and drink your coffee, like just being able to be outside. I think humans are inside so much and we're constantly looking at computers and cell phones it can be really, really good to get out in nature or if you have a patio, go sit on a patio, do something that allows you to, you know, don't get your light exposure through like the window of your car as you're driving your commute to work. Yeah, it's, there's a ton there. Uh, I was making a, just a couple of like key, like bullet points there. I think light exposure is a big one. If we just look at the just very general uh, using light to kind of assist your normal circadian rhythm, you want to get some light in the early part of the day that tells your body it's daytime. Telling your body it's daytime during the day will help your body know it's nighttime at night. And so getting the, that sort of full spectrum, ideally from the sunlight you know, whatever I could talk about so specific about how many minutes and stuff, just fucking go outside at some early part in the day, get some sun. Yeah, on, don't on, overthink it and make it yeah, stressful. Totally. Like ideally just getting outside, go outside for be... a walk, get some sun on your face, on their body, you know, technically on the optic nerve is what's most helpful, but just fucking don't overthink it. Just go outside at some point. Or yeah. like, if you have a desk job, like I understand this can be, this can be difficult. And that's why we're stressing it because it is important. And then on the flip side, if we're looking at the nighttime, it's definitely going to be avoiding that same thing that you were using to stimulate your brain and circadian rhythm and earlier in the day, you're going to try and avoid that at night. Interestingly enough, though, I've, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Peter Atia and Matthew Walker. So obviously just like a sleep genius. Um, and yeah. he was he was not back. I mean, backtracking is the word I'll use because he used it. But backtracking on some of the light stimulation stuff, just because of a confounding variable that I've actually always experienced myself, where, yes, exposure to blue light, which is highly concentrated in technology, your phone, your tablet, your TV. All oh, that yeah. Stuff. No, it's more the neurotransmitter. It's it's more your mental state as a result of engaging in yeah. the technology, even more so than the light itself, which is why I mentioned totally. like trolling people yes. on Instagram. That's so I was kind of joking, sure. but what I did mean by that is it, it's not necessarily just the cell phone or just the computer. It's the behaviors you're engaging in. So if you're doing work, which is stimulating or you're 
seeing something that is causing an alertness response in a way, those are things we typically want to reserve for daytime. So I do agree with Jordan on that. And I I have seen uh, Matthew Walker kind of backtrack on that over the years and the research kind of ebbs and flows on the blue light debate. I think it makes sense it's to relevant. logically just from yeah. a common sense perspective that, um, yeah, we want to get sunlight earlier in the day, but also later in the day, it's not just so much um, you know, my overhead lights and my computer. It's also, what am I doing on the computer? What am I doing on my phone? Um, and we could, you know, you can also do some really basic things. It's like, if you still want to be connected in some form or fashion, it's like, you know, call a sibling or, you know, call your parent. You don't necessarily have to use the phone for Instagram, right? There's like so many different things where we can use it for connection purposes that maybe aren't stressful as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to like, whip out this uh, work thing and crank out an email at you know 9.30 and try to go to bed at 10 p.m. Very, very different. So I do agree with Jordan and, and that uh, sort of recent reframe on the podcast, because I think it's helpful for people to think about the activity itself beyond just the environmental exposure, although both are probably important. Yeah. It happened to me literally yesterday where it was uh, like 8.54 and uh, my fiance and I were on the couch. We were watching something and I was like, literally, she looked at me, so you falling asleep? I was like, yeah, I'm falling asleep. But I know that when she falls asleep, I really wanted to watch Game of Thrones because she's not watching this season. She's playing catch up, whatever. And so like I wanted to fight the sleep because I really wanted to watch Game of Thrones. I was passing out. And so at like 8.54, I'm literally about to fall asleep. I put Game of Thrones on. An hour later, I was wide awake and it's like the time had passed and, I, you know, it was more so Game of Thrones gets me pumped up. Something fucking crazy happens at the end and all of a sudden I'm stimulated. Uh, right. and, it, and it was, you know, we were maybe watching TV before that uh, and it just happened to not be as stimulating to me. And that that difference in stimulation to me is super, super relevant. So I'm not saying, you know, fucking stand in front of your TV and have your phone two inches from your face. And that's a good idea. It's certainly not a good idea. The blue light is relevant. We are not backtracking that it is relevant. We're just backtracking that there's a high confounding variable here of what you're doing with those things that I find super interesting. Then we're obviously talking about caffeine, uh, four to six hour half-life potentially, but people metabolize at varied speeds. Um, You know, whatever general cutoffs can be taken to the individual. You should experiment a little bit. Um, I find the body temperature one to be one that's actually a very low hanging fruit because a lot of times these things are actually uncomfortable. Like some of the things that you have to do to kind of improve your quality of sleep. Okay, I gotta get off my phone. People don't like doing that. Maybe I don't watch like crazy TV shows right before I go. I don't like doing that. But the body temperature one is actually like one that I find to be quite comfortable. Uh, We, you know, the idea that we want our core body temperature to go down to allow us to ease into sleep, like people are like, oh, I have to like take a cold shower or something. It's like, it's actually the opposite to like taking a warm yeah. bath or a warm shower or wearing socks going into bed, like actually bringing that blood to the periphery away from the your core actually decreases your core body temperature. So it's actually a really low hanging fruit in terms of something that's actually very comfortable is like taking a warm shower, taking a warm bath and actually doing that, that it's actually very comfortable. And I find that to be something me personally yeah. actually has a big effect. Okay. Yeah. I definitely think the the bath and shower thing is really the hydrotherapy as- aspect I mentioned in terms of low hanging fruit. It's not the best time to go do your ice bath. Some people are a little bit of an anomaly in that sense, and they do find that it helps them. I would gather it could be more from the fact that if it induces more of like a meditative state or you're focused on your breathing instead of focused on all the things going on in your life there is a chance that maybe that plays a role. Um, But I would say for the most part, 90% of people definitely go warm shower, warm bath, or you can contrast between the two end on warm. And then we can use things, whether 
you know, it's a fan or air conditioning. Uh, if, if you want to get into it, there are some devices that you can actually use to go on your mattress to like cool that down as well. Um, and then, you know, I do think some people maybe don't think about it. It's like, you're falling asleep in a hoodie, right? Like maybe not the best thing in terms of that body temperature if we're wanting it to be a little bit cooler. So all really great tips. And, um, even just picking like two or three of these things to start with can go a really long way. Um, you know, in helping someone in terms of improving their sleep. So let's get a little bit into the wrap up here and let's talk a little bit about what are the things that people can do to help either acknowledge certain stresses that I do have, but more importantly, mitigate some of the stress that we don't want or mitigate the the chance that I'm uh, in a, a poor stress to recovery state or however you might phrase it. I have too much stress. What are some of the things that people could do to to mitigate some of that? So I try to really talk to clients in a way you know, this, and this is something I really do try to convey to coaches as well is, you know, some of us growing up, we really enjoyed music. Other people loved coloring books, other people constantly playing outside. I try to engage in conversation with people and really think about what did you enjoy doing before you had all of these adult responsibilities, before you had work, before you had kids, like what was your thing that you really love? Because really when we talk about stress and stress management, we just want to shift out of that rumination mode and back into the present moment. Some people like to meditate to do that, to get in the present moment. Other people absolutely hate that and would much rather, you know, draw or engage in creative therapy, which music also falls in that creative therapy category. For me, you know, I enjoy walking outside. I also, you know, there's some good research on stress management in terms of pets and the actual physiological response to stress. Um, so a big thing is just going to be getting you out of rumination mode. And there are a number of different practical things that you can do, but part of it is going to be based on your enjoyment. If there, if you feel like a coach is assigning you a stress management activity, as opposed to you being enrolled in an activity that you enjoy, it's going to create an entirely different response. Like if you told me like, Sam, you have to meditate seven times and you need to go do this. And, you know, I personally, I'm not that great at art. So if you told me to draw, like that's not super therapeutic for me, but if I was able to focus on things like music, pets, nature, for me, that could be my stress management for other people. It's community and connection. So maybe you go get your nails done with a friend, or you're going to go uh, have a meal with someone. There, there's a number of different ways we can approach stress management for the individual. And usually there's a few different strategies we're deploying, um, things that we can do on our own on a daily basis. And then something that's maybe more of like kind of a weekly activity or something we can intersperse um, and then stack over time. So those are kind of my favorites, but also understanding there is an individual response because what shifts me out of kind of rumination or being a bit more anxious or not in the present moment, focused on the future, focused on the past, that's going to be different than what does that for Jordan. Yeah, I find that I find that you should ask yourself, are what are the things I'm doing currently in my life on purpose? Because I know they're good for me. They're good for my mental health. They're good for maybe they're parasympathetic in nature, but I, I've asked that on my Q and uh, my, uh, on my question, on my check into clients before. It's like, what is something that you know you're specifically doing? Because it's good for you. It's good for your soul. It, it is a check in the box of de-stressing for lack of a more scientific way of putting it. It's like, what's something that you're actively doing that you are implementing on purpose because you know that it's good for you from a de-stressing point of view. There should be something. And like you said, it's, it can be something as simple as having a meal with a friend or a phone call or listening to a podcast and going for a walk or, you know, working with your dog or going for a walk. Like literally it could be, it doesn't, there's no shape that it has to take. It just has to be something where you are left, you know, recharged, let's say. Um, and, and yeah, I think it comes in all shapes and sizes. I cannot, not cannot meditate. I find that it's been something I've tried many times that I haven't gotten into, but for me, 
you know, spending 10 minutes making a to-do list and making my breakfast for the next day while I listen to something that's non-work related, you know, for me, that's very big to like do some, have some form of a hobby that isn't work related, that, that can take my thoughts away from today's work, from tomorrow's work, from a project that I have. Uh, and again, I think it can take all shapes and sizes, but I think it's important to, to sit down and think about, do I have anything in my life that I'm doing specifically for that? Yeah, I love that. Awesome. All right, man, we're coming up on that hour. Let people know where they can find you. There was so much more we want to talk about, but it's all good. I, I really appreciate our chat today. Um, and I'm excited for the book to come out. So drop a line, tell people where they can find you and we'll put everything in the show notes. For sure. So I'm Sam Miller Science on all platforms. So it's just my full name, Sam Miller. And then the word science, you can find that on Instagram. Also my website, sammillerscience.com. The book that's coming out is Metabolism Made Simple, Making Sense of Nutrition to Transform Metabolic Health. That'll drop on Amazon. Um, and we are going to try to run a special during the first week of the drop. So it's essentially as low as Amazon will let us price the Kindle version. If you decide you want the soft cover or hardcover, that'll be available too. But we will have that kind of promotion going on Kindle. Uh, it should drop on Barnes and Noble later. If you're interested in checking more uh, in terms of the book and uh, kind of what it's about in a brief description, you can find that at metabolismmadesimple.com. And I also have like a early release kind of waitlist situation or kind of pre-release waitlist if you're interested in checking that out. Um, but pretty much all my content, I spend a lot of time on my podcast, usually about three episodes a week. That's Sam Miller Science. And then the Instagram platform is also Sam Miller Science. Uh, so any of those would be a great place to start in terms of consuming, uh, easily accessible free content. But if you do want a little bit more, I would say the book is a great place to kind of get the aggregate of like all my ideas, methods, models, and things that I've used, um, in client transformation and also teaching coaches as well. Awesome. It's super exciting, man. I hope you have a big font version because my eyes are shot after working from home for all this time. But um, that's super, super, super exciting, man. Writing a book is a dream of mine over the long term. So that's like got to be a crazy long project. So kudos to you, man. That must have been an amazing experience. It was definitely delayed gratification at yeah, its finest. Yeah, what we try to when we try to walk the walk for clients in their transformation, it's like a book really will test you in terms of that whole aspect of like putting it into the world is incredibly delayed from the idea of the actual book itself, but it's pretty cool. And I really appreciate you giving me, you know, an opportunity and an avenue to talk about uh, the book and the content inside of it. That's awesome, man. Congratulations again. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.